Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Would you like to contribute to the conversation? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition conversation was in. Jay Talking with Bradley Jay. I listen to morning with the sun up. I'm busy. WBZ News Radio 1030. I tune my radio to AM 1030. The radio's all yours now. I talk to a man whose name is Bradley J. Improved my mind in a wonderful way. I just called in to see what condition conversation was in. Yeah, yeah. WBZ, Jay talking. We're live midnight to five, and that would be now. We call it a morning show, really, because it is a morning show. It's not really an overnight show. We love our crime story. We love a caper. We love it if it's true even more. Narco 80, the true story of the most spectacular bank robbery in American history, according to one Peter Houlihan. How do you do, sir? You are the author of this book and this story. I am. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Can you, in like one or two sentences, describe the thing, give it a broad brush, and then we'll dig in? Yeah. On uh, May 9th, 1980, five young men led by a uh, evangelical born-again Christian with end times belief attempted a takeover robbery of the Security Pacific Bank in Norco, California, about 40 miles east of Los Angeles, that uh, quickly turned into one of the most violent events in law enforcement history. And this has got it all. It's got, well, banks and robbery and evangelism and born-again Christians and murder and robberies. It's all here. Can you talk about... Yeah, it's a... Go ahead. Yeah, it's quite an event, for sure. Okay, the backdrop is the 70s, the hangover to the 60s, and you go into that a little bit in the prologue. Can you... Let's set the scene here. And after we talk about the time... We'll talk about the prime individuals and how this idea germinated. Yeah, the, uh, the era in which it took place and the location where it took place are important in terms of the motivations of uh, primarily the, uh, the person who organized this, George Wayne Smith. Uh, it's Southern California, Orange County, California, um, in the 1970s. And um, George uh, became involved at an early age in the aggressively evangelical, born-again Christian youth movement that swept through Orange County in the 70s. And it's uh, very much end times uh, theologies based on the rapture, book of Revelation, uh, second coming, and uh, the catastrophes leading up to that. And George became a real believer in that and, uh, and had pegged the... Uh, the coming of the uh, catastrophes at uh, at the before 1981, and the bank robbery took place in May of 1980. Um, George was also in the military and based in Germany and trained on uh, as an artilleryman on battlefield nuclear weapons. So it was not such a stretch in the 1970s to uh, to be able to uh, see exactly how the how the apocalypse may come and and how the uh, 
how the world might end. And that uh, very much influenced um, his decision to rob the bank. Um, there are also a lot of doomsday scenarios of other kinds of ecological disasters and things like that. And he had a roommate named Chris Harvin, who was a bit of a survivalist, who, uh, who believed that the uh, catastrophes and lawlessness would come by uh, acts of nature, such as volcanoes and earthquakes that would strike California. So it was really, in that sense, uh, very much rooted in the time and the, and the uh, place where it took place. Do you think this main perpetrator used the concocted the doomsday scenario to justify the robbery, or do you think the other way around? Well, I think that there is a number of factors that led George Wayne Smith to this, of which, uh, of which that, is, that is one. He was certainly a true believer. He certainly believed that, that, the, uh, that the end times were coming and that there was going to be uh, a period of lawlessness and, uh, and catastrophic events that would need to be survived uh, by, before you could uh, get to the rapture and the second coming. Um, but there, George also had a, had a psychological makeup that probably predisposed him to this to a bit. Um, he had a, kind of that detachment between uh, his, uh, his actions and the consequences, especially on those around him. Um, and, uh, and then he, he fell into uh, you know, some, some personal downturns um, that uh, most people would have looked at simple rough spots in their lives. But George, because he had this real grandiose vision of himself, uh, looked at as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a disaster that he needed to get out of desperately. And uh, it all kind of propelled him towards this, uh, this foolish act. And none of these guys, the five men involved, none of them had, a, had any significant criminal records before this. So this was a very bad idea that went very wrong. So George Wayne Smith, did he fall into any psychological category that we can identify? Well, you know, today we might call it a narcissistic personality disorder. It certainly had uh, those elements of grandiosity of that, uh, that he knew better than everyone else, that his, his wants and needs were more important than those around him. Um, and, uh, so, you know, that, that, that's probably, I try not to pathologize him in the, uh, in the book, but that, that, those are the elements that were certainly ex existing in him. Okay. And who did he associate himself with? Well, he, uh, George was a, uh, he worked for the parks department as a landscaper at the city of Cyprus. And he worked with a fellow named George, uh, named Christopher Harvin. And, uh, the, they were both in their early twenties when they met. And uh, Chris was, as I said, was a bit of a survivalist with kind of doomsday scenarios in his mind about how the, how the world was uh, catastrophic uh, events might come on. But the two of them bought a house together in Mira Loma, California, in, uh, in Riverside County. And uh, as they started to narrow in on dates that they thought uh, – that these uh, these catastrophes and might might hit, they began to turn their house there into a fortress. They strung it with barbed wire. They nailed in carpet tacks on the fences in case anybody tried to climb in. Uh, they dug a pit that uh, and a tunnel that went from their backyard underneath their garage. They could use as a bunker or as an escape route, and they began to stockpile weapons. And um, those were the two that. Uh, that really led this. Uh, Chris Harvin recruited his younger brother, Russell Harvin, and then uh, they both recruited a, uh, a another uh, fellow who worked at the landscape uh, in the landscaping parks department named Manny Delgado, who's 21 years old, and Manny uh, recruited his younger brother, 17-year-old Billy Delgado, to be the getaway driver. Were these people criminals? I mean, the, the latter two, or how, how do you recruit somebody for this? Obviously dangerous and illegal thing 
Well, you know, their motivations were different. George had his, Chris had his, Russell had pretty much nothing going on in his life. Um, and uh, Manny was had one child and another on the way and was short of money. And uh, Billy just kind of went along with his older brother. So they were all kind of uh, recruited and kind of pushed forward by the stronger personalities, which were George and Chris Harvin. Um, but like I say, they did not have any uh, significant criminal records okay. before this. Did either of those guys, um, Smith or Harvin, have kind of a Manson ability to a charismatic ability? No, well, you know, George Smith succeeded in converting a lot of people around him, his family, his uh, his girlfriends, his wives, uh, over the years into uh, his his brand of theology, which was really a you know a book of revelation based theology. But you could not categorize this as a cult, and he certainly did not have the other the others within his uh, his uh, particular religious spell or anything like that. They just happened to be a group of people who didn't have much going on, had some downturns in their lives. and uh, and he. But he is a very charismatic, he's a very intelligent, and he's a very compelling character and convincing. And uh, he was pretty relentless in, in convincing them that he had put together the perfect plan that uh, in which uh, they would never get caught. Well, uh, George had a plan that uh, centered around him never being taken alive. And uh, what they did is they, first of all, stockpiled uh, uh, weapons. And these were civilian version of military-grade weapons. They are semi-automatic, high-powered rifles with high-capacity magazines. They were armed with thousands of rounds of ammunition. And they made uh, homemade fragmentation grenades that could be launched from the barrels of their shotguns. And they were each armed with, uh, with one of these rifles, um, also uh, handguns. Uh, Chris Harvin entered the bank with 750 rounds of ammunition strapped to uh, bandoliers across his chest. And uh, so they figured if they did come across any police or anybody who got in their way, they could over, overwhelm them with firepower. Um, they also stole a van in the, in the morning from a nearby shopping mall to use in the uh, robbery. They tied up the owner in the back so he could not report it stolen. Um, they set off a diversion bomb underneath a gas main a mile away. And, uh, and then at 3.30 in the after, on a Friday afternoon uh, in a Southern California, busy Southern California town, they, uh, they went into the Security Pacific Bank and, uh, and took over the bank. Everybody down on the floor cleaned out the teller line and the safe and, uh, and exited the bank after about two and a half minutes. Any idea why they the chose trouble started? Any idea why they chose that bank? Uh, that happened to be George Smith's uh, own bank that he chose to rob. Um, George ignored the golden rule of Los Angeles bank robberies, which is always rob a bank near a freeway entrance. Uh, if you can get on, if you can rob a bank, jump onto a freeway uh, in about five minutes, you can be five miles away and cruising the side streets of a completely different police jurisdiction. George decided to rob his own bank, which uh, was uh, seven miles away from the closest uh, closest freeway. Ooh. And where did things go wrong? Well, actually, you know what? You go into detail in the book, the robbery itself. Can you share some of that detail? They enter the building. Things got said. You, you have personalities. You, you name names. That's really helpful if you can paint that picture with the detail. 
sure. Um, you, you know, the bank robbery inside the bank itself was was uh, extremely chaotic, as they always are, um, with a lot of different dramas. People were still entering and exiting the bank. Russell Harvin uh, was supposed to be guarding the uh, the north entrance of the bank, and um, and he was not paying attention to his to his job, and people were entering and exiting the bank. George Smith, uh, now understand they are in ski masks and military ponchos and heavily armed. And uh, George Smith is the rover. He's walking the floor, uh, screaming out times, uh, you know, with a, with a, using a stopwatch. Uh, Manny Delgado vaults the teller line with a Winchester riot gun, shotgun, and, uh, and, and cleans out the teller line. While Chris Harvin grabs a, uh, a bank manager and heads for the vault and back. The problem was is it was 3.30 in the afternoon, and uh, that bank had uh, uh, on a payday, a Friday afternoon payday, and, and in those days more money went out of banks than went into banks, and by that time there was very little money left in, in, the, uh, in the bank. And so the total take when they exited the bank was only $20,000. Jeez. Okay, so this guy Smith was supposed to be smart, a smart guy, but so far a couple of big mistakes, right? Was he, can you, how do you reconcile that? <laughs> Well, you know, George's grandiosity was, was kind of his downfall. He made a plan that was so elaborate that it almost guaranteed something would go wrong. The first thing that went wrong is diversion bomb under the gas main uh, was put out by a passing motorist with a fire extinguisher. Um, that's when they probably should have called it a, called it a kidnapping, and they still had the guy tied up in the back and, 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 and called it a day and gone home. But uh, they decided to move ahead with this, um, with this plan. And as often foils bank robberies, uh, you know, it's, it, there was a little bit of bad luck mixed in there, if you could call it that, in that um, when they had entered the bank, they were spotted by a bank teller from a bank across the street. And it was that bank teller from a different bank that called, uh, that called uh, the Riverside County Sheriff's and reported a robbery in progress. So when they came out of the bank two and a half minutes later, um, their misfortune was that uh, at, the, at the time that the, uh, the tone went out for the Riverside County Sheriff's that it was a bank robbery in progress, Deputy Glenn Belaski happened to be exactly at that intersection looking straight at that bank. And uh, he responded on scene within two seconds and came face-to-face -face with four heavily armed bank robbers exiting a bank. And, uh, and what proceeded was a wild firefight in a crowded Southern California intersection. Okay, can we get in, go into slow motion now? And, <laughs> sure. And you can give all the granular detail of the shootout? Yeah. Um, what happened was Glenn Belaski was, was at the stoplight. He made a left turn, and as he made the left turn, they began shooting at him, and he did not realize it. And uh, his uh, light bar was blown out. And, uh, but within 15 seconds, he was making the turn into the bank parking lot, and he immediately began to take rounds through the front windshield of his vehicle. Belaski had the presence of mind to lay, uh, lay down on the, on the, across the front seat of his, uh, of his patrol unit, even though he was wounded, reach up, throw the patrol unit into reverse, and shoot it back onto 4th Street, and where it slid and, and ended up sideways in the middle of the road, uh, blocking the primary uh, uh, um, exit route for the uh, escape route for the, for the bank robbers. At this time, the four bank robbers pile back into the van with 17-year-old Billy Delgado behind the wheel, and they head for the exit. And as they're passing Glenn Belaski's uh, vehicle and still firing upon him, and he's been wounded, 
Glenn Belaski stands up with a shotgun and fires four shotgun blasts through the back of the van, and one pellet strikes Billy Delgado at the base of the skull, paralyzing him immediately, and the van veers off the road and crashes into a chain-link fence. So now you have uh, the four remaining bank robbers stranded in the van with a hostage in the back, uh, Glenn Belaski has already put out an 1199, which is an officer down, so there are patrol units descending on that intersection. Uh, and these are California Highway Patrol units, Riverside County deputies, Riverside City PD. Uh, everybody drops everything on an 1199, and they are all descending on that intersection as these four guys are piling out of this van uh, with their weapons, with their duffel bags of ammunition, and they start going out into this crowded intersection looking for another vehicle. And uh, I'll tell you the scope of what happened in that intersection. There were over 500 rounds fired. Uh, there were three deputies who arrived on scene. Uh, Glenn Belaski was wounded. All three vehicles were hit with gunfire. Uh, Belaski's vehicle was hit 46 times. Um, there were two bank robbers that were that were injured, as well as the one that was killed at that intersection. And uh, there were civilians running for their lives. There were people bailing out of their vehicles, people coming out of fast food restaurants to try to see what was going on. There were bullets flying through houses, through storefronts, uh, into civilian vehicles. And um, it, 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 the whole firefight took about... Uh, four and a half minutes and when it was done they fled the scene in a yellow pickup truck and began a running gun battle through the streets of riverside county okay the officer he was hit well his car was hit 40 something times he was hit five times correct that's correct and one of them in the face so was he, he was returning fire after having been hit five times well he uh deputy glenn Belaski, the first rounds came uh came through his windshield and sprayed him with bullet fragments. These are 223 rounds. Uh, uh, most of them are 223 rounds, um, you know, that are fired by, like, from an M16. They, they're known for fragmenting upon impact. And they, he was hit with bullet fragments as well as broken glass that sprayed him in the face and in the arms. He, when he lay down on the seat, uh, a, a round came through his dashboard, and he caught more fragments in the shoulder. Uh, when he went back, he was, uh, it, while in the... Uh, in this road, he was he was hit again with more fragments. The, the um, worst injury came after he had fired through the back of the van, and that's when they piled out and opened fire on his vehicle again. And a round came through and hit hit an artery in his elbow, um, which was his his worst injury. Ouch! See, I want to point something out, folks. Who I don't want to really politicize, but this is important uh, important to make this point about getting assault weapons off the street. If it's a, a handgun. It's not the the rounds not coming through the dashboard and hitting him. It's the two two three round that's coming through the dash and hitting him. That kind of thing matters. Okay. Uh, well, let's we have another minute or two to uh, continue. Uh, what happened to the bad guys? Yeah. The um. The, this is a uh, the, the event itself, the pursuit and the gunfight that followed the bank robbery is something that changed its complexion uh, 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 almost constantly. It began as this ferocious firefight in an intersection. It then turned into a running gun battle through suburban streets um, of Orange County uh, or of Riverside County. It then uh, went on to a uh, crowded interstate highway, Interstate 15, on a on a Friday afternoon, in which they were throwing fragmentation grenades out the back of the 
uh, out the back of the truck uh, at pursuing police. They were hitting police and civilian vehicles from a half mile away with these high-powered rifles, and they downed a San Bernardino uh, police helicopter, a sheriff's helicopter, over the uh, I-15 freeway. And then uh, the bank robbers get off on the freeway at Sierra Avenue and head into the San Gabriel National Forest. And anybody who's been to Los Angeles and been up in those mountains above uh, Los Angeles and Riverside County, those are very formidable uh, mountains. These are uh, deep canyons, uh, rugged hillsides, and they begin to wind up this, uh, up this road. And now there are 40 police cars in pursuit at that time. What kind of, vehicle do, the, what, what kind of vehicle do the bad guys have at this point? Well, you know, they, uh, they managed to commandeer what is probably the ideal, ideal vehicle for their purposes. Uh, at the intersection of 4th and Hamner, they aimed a gun at a, a fellow who was driving a uh, F, uh, Ford F-250 pickup truck that had been equipped as a heavy, maintenance, uh, heavy machinery maintenance vehicle. So it, it, uh, on the back in the bed, they had, uh, they had fabricated metal cabinets that had been built up on the side that were filled with, uh, with, with tools. Um, they had uh, heavy acetylene and uh, oxygen tanks that were mounted against the back of the cab. And remember, in these days, the, uh, the deputies uh, involved were guarding the Wild West with the same weapons they had been for 100 years. That's a six-shooter and a Winchester shotgun, and they are not going to penetrate those, uh, those heavy tanks. So those tanks just served as, uh, as cover, and uh, they could fire over the top of them, and uh, they could fire over those cabinets. And, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, considering the firepower they had, they were firing 223 semi-automatics. They were firing 308, which is an absolute cannon, a semi-automatic. That's what George Smith had. You know, considering the, the, that vehicle and the firepower, it was almost, almost uh, military grade at that point. Um, and that's what these police were up against, the deputies in the uh, California Highway Patrol and the, the other agencies involved. Was it a dirt road they're on now in the mountains? Well, it starts as a paved road. It quickly becomes a dirt road about seven miles up, and it begins to, to rise in altitude. And uh, at about uh, 6,000 feet, it becomes a very narrow fire road and uh, that is just clinging to the side of a, the mountain. I mean, under the best conditions, it, it's a harrowing trip. It's really made only for, uh, for park service vehicles or, or for, you know, for fires. Um, and uh, the pursuit uh, moves up that road and at that time there's a riverside deputy named james evan who's take evans who's taken the lead in the pursuit and uh jim evans is a veteran he's also a combat veteran of vietnam uh green beret he's a little bit older than others on the force uh having come to policing a little bit later he's about 38 years old and he's a decorated war hero and, and looked up to by the other guys on the force and he's taken the lead followed by um uh, so California Highway Patrol unit and, and some others. And there's about 40 in the pursuit strung out behind this truck at that point. Any idea how far behind the truck the lead vehicle was, Jim Evans? <laughs> well, the, the, the truck had begun back in Mira Loma and in Riverside County and continuing onto the highway and up Lytle Creek Canyon, which is the road they're on. The truck had begun slowing down on blind curves uh, so that it could ambush uh, the pursuing police vehicles. Evans is uh, is smart enough to hang back and and try to keep an eye and catch that catch that truck when it's becoming visible again. Um, but so he's keeping anywhere between uh, 
you know, 200 yards to uh, to about uh, a quarter mile at any given time. But they're still in a they're still in a fairly close pursuit, and they are taking fire. His vehicle is getting struck by gunfire, as are most of the lead vehicles along the way. And all he has is a revolver and a shotgun, or he does he have different weapons? No, uh, between the uh, between the two uh, sh- uh, sheriff's departments involved, Riverside County and uh, San Bernardino County, they only had one uh, semi-automatic, only one high-powered rifle between them at that time, back in 1980. And uh, as it were, this this one weapon was an M16 military rifle that had been confiscated by the San Bernardino uh, Sheriff's Department from a drug dealer in a pursuit. And it had been thrown out the wind car window. It had been, uh, it was sitting in, a, uh, in the trunk of a sergeant's vehicle. The, the military didn't want it back. And, and so they kept it hanging around. No one had been trained on it. But when, they, uh, when the reports came of the firepower they were up against, uh, uh, once the pursuit went into San Bernardino County, one of their deputies grabbed that rifle and some high-capacity uh, high magazines that were with it, jumped into another vehicle, and they uh, started passing vehicles in the pursuit, calling out that they had an automatic weapon. And when the uh, pursuit ended up on the fire road, they were the second vehicle behind, uh, behind Jim Evans at that time. So I love the detail. Love it. How long has it been the pursuit been at this point, time-wise? Uh, it has just gone over an hour, and, uh, um, and it has gone for 40 miles at this point. <clears throat> okay. Well, at some point, it gets over, and uh, I'm, I'm wondering if the bad guys crash out, if they spin off the road, or what happens? Well, what happens is that about 6,500 feet up on this narrow fire road, uh, they come to uh, a washout in the road. The fire road in front of them is going to be completely washed out by a, by a, by a landslide. And uh, at that point, they, they jam on their brakes. They jump out of the truck. They line up in the road, and they wait for the pursuing officers to come around the, uh, the final bend there. When Jim Evans and uh, the San Bernardino unit with the uh, with the with the uh, M16 come around the corner, they uh, they open fire in a in an ambush, and uh, they um, rounds immediately come through Jim Evans' uh, windshield. He has the uh, he has the uh, presence of mind to uh, to call out that his that his vehicle's been hit and to dive out of his vehicle and begin returning fire from about 75 feet away with a with his 38 revolver. 38 revolver, somehow, wow. Yeah. And uh, somehow Jim Evans Jim Evans manages to to shoot uh, Chris Harvin in the back with the 38 and it's a miraculous shot to uh, to hit uh, to be able to hit any target from 75 feet away with a 4-inch revolver while under heavy fire. Yeah. But Jim Evans was uh, was a pretty miraculous person. So he was not hit initially. He was not hit initially. At that point, um, unfortunately, Jim Evans uh, uh, backed up. He went behind his uh, his patrol unit. He ducked down. He used a speed loader to uh, to reload uh, uh, six rounds into his revolver. And when he came up to fire again, he was immediately hit by a by a round from a two twenty three uh, in the in the uh, in his eye, and uh, fell to the ground dead uh, instantly. So you had the unit behind him. How did they fare? Well, the unit behind him, the same volley that uh, that uh, 
the same volley that, that killed Jim Evans came through the windshield of the, uh, of the San Bernardino patrol unit behind him. And in that patrol unit was a, a uh, at the, behind the wheel was a, was a veteran deputy named Jim McFerrin, who had done quite an amazing job uh, working his way up a pursuit line of 40 vehicles to get almost to the front. Um, in the passenger seat was D.J. McCarty, and D.J. McCarty was a little bit of a San Bernardino cowboy. He'd only been on the force about a year and a half, um, and he's the one who grabbed the weapon, and he had no training with that weapon, with an M16. And he, uh, he had not loaded the weapon coming up the mountain. They did not know where they were in the pursuit line, and he was worried about uh, having a loaded M16 in the vehicle while McFerrin was... Uh, was driving rather uh, rather wildly up the canyon, and um, the rounds that came that killed Evans several came through the windshield. One of them struck D.J. McCarty in the elbow, and uh, he immediately kicked open his passenger door as a diversion and dove out the driver's door and found himself on this mountain road, taking an immense amount of gunfire as the uh, as the uh, as the the, uh, the the bank robbers began to uh, advance on the line of police cars, uh, firing away, and DJ McCarty, in in all the uh, excitement, had left the uh, M16 inside the police vehicle, and in a panic, he uh, he he, you know, for to, for his life, he began to dig his way underneath this uh, this patrol unit, uh, which was a Ford Fairlane. Uh, dig into the dirt and try to get himself under this vehicle. Um, he soon realized that he was probably going to die under there if he stayed under there. So DJ McCarty reaches up, he fishes around with his hand, and he manages to get a hold of that that M16 rifle, drag it out, and two of the clips come falling out with it. Uh, he begins to load the clips into the thing, but into the, the the gun, the magazine into the gun. But he doesn't. He's not been trained on it. So every time he goes to to uh, uh, you know, forward or around into the chamber, the clip just keeps falling out of the gun. And meanwhile, he's taking more fire, and these uh, these bank robbers are advancing on him. Um, finally, DJ McCarty manages to get that uh, that clip to stick in that gun. He manages to forward around into the into the chamber, and he stands up and he just uh, sweeps the road with uh, semi-automatic gunfire. And uh, <clears throat> You know, it ended up being that that gun was the was uh, was finally the the thing that uh, scattered those bank robbers uh, into the mountains of uh, of, of the of Lytle Creek and uh, ended the gun the gunfight for that day. One, I have and, one. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, and and after that, the uh, the the four surviving bank robbers vanished into the uh, the canyons of uh, of Lytle Creek. Okay, one question before the break. Any idea? Why? What it was he was doing wrong with the magazine as he was he was untrained. But what was he doing wrong actually? So that when he tried to chamber around, the magazine would fall out. Do you know? Well, he 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 says it could have been a couple of things. One, after being thrown out the window of the vehicle when they in 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 that pursuit when they originally obtained the weapon, that it might have been damaged. The other is that it there's a little bit of a difference between a regular uh, AR-15 and the way an M16 uh, magazine gets. Uh, Gets settled into that, uh, settled into the magazine port, and he did not know that little trick. And uh, <clears throat> after uh, after kind of beating it against a rock in desperation, he he uh, he's not even sure exactly how, but finally that thing stuck, and he was managed to uh, he managed to forward the rod and get the get the round into the chamber. He must have been very glad when that happened. Let's take a break and uh, and continue. We have a short time with our excellent guest Peter Houlihan and his great story. 
Norco 80, the true story of the most spectacular bank robbery in American history. More on BZ. Now, what do you say? I look forward to your next syllable with great eagerness. Jay Talking with Bradley Jay. WBZ News Radio 1030. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Do you want to talk? About what? I'm talking about my life. I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. Do you understand? Okay, talk. Jay talking with Bradley J. WBZ News Radio 1030. It's a great segment tonight. I'm I'm loving it. If you're listening on the on the live. And you missed part of this. You should know that it will be podcast, so you can go back and hear the whole thing and share it. And if you're listening on the podcast, you should know that we have guests every, pretty much every midnight, and you can listen live. Peter Houlihan is the guest. Norco 80, the true story of the most spectacular bank robbery in American history. One thing I have to ask, I should have done it in the beginning. Norco. Why Norco? Is that the name of the bank? Well, Norco is the... Yeah, Norco is the town in which the uh, in which the bank robbery took place okay. uh, in Riverside County and uh, eighty because it happened in nineteen eighty. Okay, Norco. So after all, all my preparation, I, I hadn't noticed the t- the name of the town. How bad? That's bad. Bad on me. All right. <laughs> so right. the uh, the bad guys scatter into the woods. Uh, they did, the story is not over. What happens? Uh, at that point, the the uh, law enforcement, pursuing law enforcement, decide to hunker down for the night. It's getting uh, it's getting later in the evening. It's a very cold night. There's a low cloud cover, so they're losing their um, they're going to lose their helicopter. Uh, that's that's above them, and um, so uh, they uh, they settle in for the night. And uh, and uh, San Bernardino has command, and they start bringing up uh, uh, the tracking tracker teams. Uh, their own SWAT personnel from the city, from the city uh, police departments um, in in San Bernardino County, and they also be, they call uh, L.A. Sheriff's Office, uh, known as LASO, L-A-S-O, and they uh, they request for them uh, these specialized tracking uh, SWAT teams um, that are known as the hunt and kill teams, and uh, these are two man teams that go up with a uh, with a with a uh, with two SWAT members, one one armed with a shotgun, one armed with a high-powered rifle, and they are accompanied by uh, by an, a, another uh, patrol uh, officer as well as a uh, a, a dog, uh, a, a tracking dog, and uh, they uh, at first light there's uh, commences the largest manhunt in California history. There's uh, 200 law enforcement officers involved. There's multiple helicopters. There's uh, horse, uh, there's uh, mounted uh, horse trackers. There are, there are dogs and there are uh, uh, officers from four different agencies that are up in these, uh, again, extremely rugged mountains. It's been a very cold night. It has dropped below freezing. There has been a uh, freezing rain and snow 
and um, and uh, they begin looking for these uh, for the four remaining bank robbers. Um, George Smith had been uh, fairly badly wounded at the intersection. He had been uh, hit by shotgun pellets in the groin and had lost uh, about a third of his blood. Um, when they uh, jumped out of the truck and headed up the headed up the fire road after they were driven off by DJ McCarty and the M16, George uh, quickly went over the side and slid down the hill a couple hundred yards. But George had about had it. Uh, Chris Harvin and Russell Harvin continued up the fire road another quarter mile. Uh, Chris had been shot in the back. He went over the side uh, to, to head down into the canyons. Russell went a little bit farther up. Russell had taken a shotgun pellet beneath his scalp. It had not uh, penetrated his skull, but he had a shotgun pellet under his scalp. He was a diabetic. He did not have insulin or food. So he'd about had it, and he went over the edge. Um, and Manny Delgado was the only one who was not wounded. But Manny, 21-year-old Manny, had seen his 17-year-old brother <clears throat> killed right in front of him uh, in the bank, in front of the bank. So uh, Manny uh, was, was still armed with a 223 rifle, and he continued up the road. Um, the next morning, uh, George, George Smith gave up fairly early without a fight. Uh, the Harvin brothers had met up during the middle of the night. Uh, Chris had lit a fire to try to keep warm, and uh, Russell had seen it, joined up, and they began to try to walk out of the canyon, and they were scooped up uh, fairly quickly. Uh, Manny Delgado was not tracked down until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, hiding under a brush, holding a, a 38 caliber handgun, and one of the hunt-and-kill teams moved in on him, and when he did not immediately... Uh, give up. They uh, opened fire on Manny, and uh, and uh, he was killed by gunfire. <clears throat> so, you know, you had the two guys, uh, George Smith and the two oldest guys, George Smith and Chris Harvin, who, who vowed never to be taken alive. And, uh, you know, uh, as it turns out, it's, it's, it's the two youngest, 21-year-old uh, Manny Delgado and 17-year-old Billy Delgado, who are the ones who, uh, who end up not being taken alive. Folks, there's a lot more in the book. There's the trial. And then there's this ex exquisite detail. First, I, I noticed a couple of interesting things. 1980, assault-style weapons, not illegal, but also not common then, correct? They were very rare. Yeah, they, they were not common. In fact, they had not seen those, uh, those kind of weapons used in a, in a takeover bank robbery, almost going back uh, you know, to, the, to the gangster era, um, the Depression-era gangsters. And... Um, you know, they were not being uh, pushed as heavily by the gun manufacturers at that time, uh, but they had started to see them showing up on the streets, mostly in the hands of uh, the drug gangs and the uh, motorcycle gangs out of San Bernardino who ran the methamphetamine uh, uh, business. And um, so they were starting to see these weapons uh, showing up on the street, and they had started to talk about perhaps arming the uh, patrol units with at least some of these so they could bring them to bear. Um, but that, by, by that time, very few law enforcement agencies outside of SWAT teams uh, were arming, uh, arming anyone on their force with those kind of weapons. Uh, but they, uh, these, uh, these weapons were all legally bought, but you just didn't see them a lot in the hands of uh, private citizens. Other thing that I noticed that is different than, it, than now, the bad guys have no body armor, and they, they were very much into armament, and they, were, they, were, you know, they had military knowledge, yet they had no body armor. Yeah, I mean uh, that is uh, for whatever reason that was uh, that was uh, not part of their uh, what they put together to defend themselves. 
Because if like that guy that got shot in the back by the thirty-eight revolver, he w- he would have been unaffected probably. Well, that's very interesting. Yeah, I, I, th- I think yeah, I, th- I think their assumption was that they would just overwhelm. I mean, they they knew what police were carrying in those days, and they their thinking was they would just overwhelm uh, any any number of police officers who got in their way, and they and they did in a sense succeed in doing that. But uh, one of the big flaws in the plan is that you know once you start engaging in that volume of firefight, your chances of uh, slipping away unseen are, uh, are are pretty slim, especially once you get a helicopter on you. Um, which is why they had shot one out of the sky above them, um, but uh, yeah, their their plan was to to blast their yeah. way out of anything that any, anything that got in their way. Just also tactically, I noticed that another thing that's really harmful about bad guys with assault style weapons is with the two two three round, they, they were keeping the police at bay on the highway. They were keeping them a half a mile away, and that's another reason the thing continued as, as long as it did is because you can keep. Pursuers a half a mile away with weapons like that. So that's all technical. One, there's only one more question. That is, what is Brew 102? In the beginning. <laughs> well, if you're from California, from Los Angeles in the uh, in the 70s or 80s, Brew 102 is the uh, is a is a beer that's brewed right off of was brewed in a brewery right off the 101 freeway uh, in the shadow of Dodger Stadium, and it was about the uh, the lousiest but cheapest beer that you could get. So the, your your story opens up uh, with a brew 102. I love the detail. I appreciate your time. But I love the detail in both the storytelling now and in the book. Norco 80, it's your new favorite book if you like crime stuff, and who doesn't? The true story of the most spectacular bank robbery in American history. Thank you so much, Peter Houlihan. Thanks, Bradley. Appreciate it. Yeah, and let me know as soon as you get another book because you're great. All right, man. I appreciate it. Yep. Uh, WBZ. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.